I'm going to be honest with you this evening. The task before me tonight with what I know the Lord's laid on my heart to share, I'm about to say something, and, and I hope it won't sound corny because the last thing I'm trying to do right now is sound corny. But the task before me is much like if I were a mute person, a mute person, not able to talk, but if standing beside me was a blind person and say we were standing at an ocean somewhere that along the coast of North Carolina and either a sunrise or a sunset and both of those are beautiful in their own right. And I'm standing beside a blind person who can't see it. But I, I want them so bad to know what it looks like, this, this, this wonderful beauty. And I, I, I see it. I see how beautiful it is, but I want them to know it. But they're blind. They can't see what I see. And so I want to describe it to them, and yet I'm mute. <laughs> I can see what I see, and try to think in my mind, but when it comes time to even telling them about it, I can't do that. I don't have the ability to do that. And I know this probably sounds dumb, but we're going to talk tonight from the Psalms, and here's what we're talking about. Week 11, seeing Jesus in the Psalms. And I want to give you this statement the Psalms are formed. Somebody says, Christian, what, 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 when you read the Psalms and you study this book, <laughs> what's the shape of the Psalms? Well, the shape of the Psalms is the Psalms are formed in the shape of Jesus. And we're going to talk about Jesus from the Psalms. We're going to see Jesus in the Psalms tonight for just a few minutes but I'm going to go ahead and tell you that standing up here, I feel as inadequate, I feel as limited, I feel as incapable of doing an adequate job, a job worthy of Jesus, and describing to you what we see together, I feel like I, there, there's no way in the world that I can fully describe to you the greatness of our wonderful, wonderful Lord as we see him presented to us in full color, crystal clear here in this precious book. And I realize tonight again, more than ever, how I need the Holy Spirit of God and how we need the Holy Spirit of God to illumine our minds. Uh, Jesus said that the Spirit of God is what guides us and leads us into all truth. And tonight, when we leave in just a few minutes, my prayer is that we will have seen Jesus more clearly than ever before and that we will be more in love with him and more standing in awe of his absolute worthiness. So first of all, look with me in Psalm 22. The Psalms show us, first of all, the suffering Savior. Now, there are many what we would call messianic psalms. A messianic psalm, just to put it plainly, is a psalm 
that directly or indirectly speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where there are verses and statements made where the fulfillment of that picture or that statement is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this psalm, Psalm 22, notice, and you'll be able to pick up right off the bat who this is referring to ultimately. Psalm 22, verse 1. See if you recognize this. And I know you're going to, so as I read it and as you read it, I want us to transport ourselves 1,500 years into the future. Not King David saying this, but the precious Lord Jesus saying this. As he was hanging on Calvary's cross that afternoon and black midnight hung in the sky, One preacher said that God the Father had bankrupted heaven. And his darling son was hanging on that middle cross. And in fulfillment of this prophecy, Jesus uttered these words in verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, we see the fulfillment of this in Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That was Aramaic. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do we understand tonight, ladies and gentlemen? I'm not sure we can understand it fully. In fact, I don't believe we can. But here's what we say. We say that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, that God the Father, here's what we say, that God turned his back on Jesus. But I want us to understand tonight that it was even worse than that. You see, the word forsaken, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken doesn't just mean that God turned away or that God turned his back. The word forsaken is literally the word that they would use to describe an orphan. Somebody that had been abandoned by their parent, particularly by their father. In other words, literally, we could read this and say that God the Father, we could say that Jesus, God the Son, was crying out to God the Father, my God, my God, why have you orphaned me? We understand why. That God the Father had to orphan God the Son. Because in those hours on the cross as Jesus was dying and Jesus was suffering, and here's what we can't understand, that in those hours that Jesus was suffering, Jesus was taking on himself an infinite sin debt. 
Paul said that he became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we who are sinners might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus infinitely took every single sin. Christian, how bad is sin? How horrible is sin? And here's what we don't get. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen, that one act of disobedience, read Romans 5, one sin in the garden plummeted mankind headlong into an eternity in the lake of fire. One sin. One sin is so infinitely heinous and bad and wicked and an insult to the holiness and justice of God that it merited and warranted an eternity in hell. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, you and I have not just committed one sin. We've committed millions and millions of sins. And Jesus wasn't just taking my millions of sins on himself. He was taking every single sin for every single person who has ever been born or ever will be born. There's no way in this world that you and I, when we read these words and in our mind and in our spirit and in our heart, when we say these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's no way in the world that you and I can understand what was transpiring there. God the Father could not look on his own darling son. Not because he didn't love Jesus. Not because he doesn't love sinners. Hear me, please. The worst thing about hell and the worst thing about the lake of fire is not the fire, it's not the darkness, it's not the fact that it's eternal. Hear me carefully, please. The worst thing about the lake of fire is that the presence of God, hear me, is not evident and manifest there. Separation. Isolation. You ever felt lonely? You ever felt isolated? You ever needed companionship and needed somebody who understood you, needed a listening ear? You felt abandoned, you felt alone, you felt forsaken, but you were the loneliest person on the face of this earth. Multiply that by the billions, and that's only a drop in the bucket. Hear me to what Jesus experienced when he literally was orphaned and forsaken by the Father. If we keep reading, we understand that 
in this Psalm verse 6, it says that Jesus will be rejected by his own people. Here in Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8, it says he will be derided by his enemies. Verse 14 says that from his body will come blood and water at his crucifixion. And when you read the account, you see that when they pierced Jesus' side, that from his wound came blood and water. Verse 16 says that his hands and feet will be pierced. Verse 18 says that lots will be cast for his clothing. And that's exactly what happened. Psalm 31, 5, uh, he will commit his spirit to God the Father. Psalm 34, 20, his bones will be unbroken. And by the way, that's exactly the way it played out. Not one single bone of Jesus was broken. In Psalm 35, verse 11, it says he will be accused by false witnesses. Psalm 35, 19 says that he'll be hated without a cause. Psalm 38, 13 says he will be like a silent lamb being led to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, by the way, about that phrase says that like a lamb is like a lamb who was silent and mute was led to the slaughter. So Jesus opened not his mouth. Psalm 41, 9 says that Jesus will be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 69, 21 says that while he's hanging there, they will give him vinegar mixed with gall. Psalm 109, verse 4 says that while he's dying, he will in fact pray for his enemies. And I want you to hear me, dear one, that's exactly... Every single thing that the Psalms predicted about the death of Jesus as our suffering Savior to, to the very infinite degree, every bit of it took place. The Psalms show us the suffering Savior, but then turn one page, maybe on the same page, but Psalm 23, the very next Psalm. Psalm 23, the Psalms, number two, show us the good shepherd. Shows us the good shepherd. What a wonderful text. Probably this passage has been read more at funerals than any other verse in Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. And I love this verse. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You could have quoted that just like I did. And yet it's not just words on a page. Jesus Christ really is the good shepherd. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 11. I am, he said, the good shepherd. And the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Aren't you glad tonight that you know the good shepherd? You've heard the, the story of this famous orator, 
who was very gifted in the theater. And one of his most popular orations was to quote Psalm 23. And one night at a gathering, he was asked, Hey, hey, give us your, give us your favorite recitation. And this classically trained orator, actor, dramatist, stood up in the midst of this gathering and without flaw quoted with all the dramatic pauses, all the inflection that anyone could have, he quoted Psalm 23. And everybody raved and applauded, oh, oh, what a good job you did. And finally, there was an elderly gentleman, weak in his voice, who stood up in the midst of the room, and he too quoted Psalm 23. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't fancy like the one before him. But there was something different about the way he quoted it. And when he got done, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. Somebody remarked and asked, what was the difference? To which came the reply, the first man knew the psalm. The second man knew the shepherd. Aren't you glad you know the shepherd? Aren't you glad that that same shepherd that we see in Psalm 23 is the shepherd in Luke 15 that went after the lost sheep? And you know who the lost sheep is and was? It's you and I. How many of you know what it is to have been that lost sheep? And Jesus left the 99 and he came after you. And he came after me. Psalm 2 verse 7 says that he is the son of God. Psalm 8 verse 2 says that he will be praised by children. And so he was. Psalm 118 verse 26 says he comes in the name of the Lord. And he did. And then I closed tonight. I want you to look one psalm down. We've seen the suffering Savior in Psalm 22. We've seen the Good Shepherd in Psalm 23. But Psalm 24 shows us the glorious King. The earth is the Lord's. I love this psalm. And the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. And then I love this refrain. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. And be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord 
strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that Jesus Christ here in the Psalms is not just the good shepherd. Jesus Christ was not just presented as the suffering Savior. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ is presented in the Psalms as the glorious King. Listen to this verse, Revelation 19, 16. See if you see a corresponding connection here. And he hath on his vesture... And on his thigh, a name written. What do you think that name was? King of kings and Lord of lords. In Psalm 1610, it says that Jesus will rise from the dead. In Psalm 45, 6, it says that he is the eternal king. In Psalm 68, 18, it says that one day after his death and resurrection, he will ascend into heaven. Psalm 80 verse 17 says that he will be exalted to the Father's right hand. Psalm 89 verses 3 and 4 says that he will occupy the throne of David. Psalm 107 verse 29 says that he will exercise authority over the elements of the weather. And I'm reminded on at least two occasions when Jesus calmed the storm as he found and his disciples were found to be in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says that he will one day rule over his enemies. Psalm 110, verse 4, says that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Psalm 118, verse 22, says that he, Jesus, is the chief cornerstone. And Psalm 8, verse 6, says that he will be the ruler of all. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen... I just wanted to encourage you that the prophecies uttered about Jesus in this precious book, when you turn the pages into the New Testament, every single thing that it said about Jesus in Psalms came to pass and one day will come to pass. And let's bask in the greatness and glory and worthiness of King Jesus.